Welcome to the Mary Shannon Bible Study with speaker, leader, and acclaimed Bible teacher, Mary Shannon. Every week, she'll dive deep into scripture using her unique blend of laugh-out-loud humor and hitting-you-between-the-eyes truth that we all need. So put on your big girl pants, because here we go. Well, we've had the overview, right? And we've, we've taken all the themes from chapter one, and you have a theme card by now, right? You also lie, you lie. Hopefully you made a theme card from chapter one with all the themes of John. And then we looked at the portraits, right? The first portraits, because what was the purpose of John's writing? John chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. I, have ri- I could have written a lot of things, he said. Matter of fact, the books, I couldn't have even written enough books to contain it all. But I've chosen these things, these certain things, so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And not just in title, but that he is the fulfillment of all the Messiah was to be and will be. He is the Messiah, and he is the Son of God. He is divine. He is God in flesh. By believing these things, that you will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing these things, you will have life. And we have been talking about what kind of life from the very beginning, right? That he is in the process of building a new family. The light has come into the world. His own rejected him, but many will receive him, and those that will receive him will be called children of God, not born of man, not born of the flesh or seed or will of man, but born from above. That's what he has come to do. And so we're going to see these themes all through the portraits. Do you remember the first four? Okay, I'm always reminding you of this, of how it's, how it's put together. The first four portraits that we looked at were basically Jewish institutions, a wedding. We looked at what else? Temple, okay, the temple incident. We looked at a conversation with a rabbi, and then we had a conversation at a well. And in all of those portraits, we saw that the system was broken down, and he is saying, but I am the fulfillment of those things, right? He is, he begins his ministry with the wedding, and he will End all things with the wedding, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The best will be saved for last. The the abundance, the joy will never run out, right? It's in his blood. We will sit down at a banquet, do you remember, at the end of all things, and we will eat meat with the bone in it and the most aged wine. And while we're swallowing that beautiful banquet, he will be swallowing up what? Death. We had such a beautiful imagery of that, the temple, the prophetic sign. No, this temple was supposed to be pointing to something. You have corrupted it. It was pointing to who? Me. So what gives me authority to clear this temple? I'll tell you what. Destroy this temple in three days and I will raise it up again. The word put on flesh and he tabernacled among us. He was a living temple, and we saw the glory in him, the glory of the only one from the Father. This prophetic sign that will be completed later on in John when the tomb is empty, right? Then we had a conversation with the rabbi. You're the teacher in Israel, yet you do not understand that to see 
the kingdom, you must be born again. Physical births, physical. Spiritual births, spiritual. We're going to look at this again today. How does that happen? Well, I'll tell you how it happens. Not through your good works. The son of man will be lifted up as the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Look and live. And then the well, right? Oh, these earthly wells, you have to keep coming and drawing because they never satisfy. But he looks at this one, the well, when a lot of people found their bride at a well, he looks at the one that was cast out and he says, oh, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would ask me for living water. And he tells her, I am. And he is saying that he is the living water. And so we had all these beautiful pictures. And then we went into the other portraits. What were they? Uh, Festivals, holy days, holidays, right? Sabbath was the first one. What were they aggravated about? That he was teaching on the Sabbath. And he says, my father is working on the Sabbath. So I'm working on the Sabbath. I'm here to fulfill the Sabbath, to make this man whole. You circumcise on the Sabbath because circumcision and the Sabbath are both signs of a covenant. They, they go together, right? If you can make one part of the body whole, then why shouldn't I be able to make the whole body whole on the Sabbath? Like, use good judgment. See what I'm saying. And from that moment on, man, they're ready to kill him. What's the next one? The Passover, right, where he has the feeding of the 5,000. What's his point? He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. So what is believing? It's eating the bread. He's like, don't work for food that perishes. Your forefathers ate manna in the desert and they died. You're missing the point. I'm not the new Moses. I am the bread of life. I am life. And so you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, internalize me because I am life. And we talked about that in that lesson. And remember in the Passover, they're studying and they're remembering the wilderness wanderings. And he's saying, I am the bread from heaven. And then we came to chapter eight, or actually still chapter seven, where he says, in verse 37, right, on the last day of the feast, the great day, oh, what is the Feast of Tabernacles, by the way, remember? Okay, they're living in booths, uh, little shelters in the streets. Uh, it is the most joyous of all the feasts, according to Josephus, and they're living in these booths in the streets for seven days, so basically, God, Yahweh, had told them, when you get into the land, once a year, I want you to live for seven days as if you're not so that you will remember God's provision for you in the wilderness. And so they lived in these booths. Can you imagine? They're camping out for a week with their children. They can see through the branches the same stars that their forefathers would have looked at, and they're telling the stories, and every day is a great celebration, starting with the water libation in the morning, which I would have loved to have seen. First thing in the morning, do you remember? The priests take the golden vessel and they go from the temple, which is the highest place, walking down through the city, and they come to the pool of Siloam, which is 
fed by the Gion Spring, living, running water. And, they, and there's a parade. They're singing and dancing and blowing the shofar. It's like our parades coming down through the city. And they fill up the golden vessel. And they march back and sing back. And then they pour it on, in a funnel on the altar. And there's all kinds of reading, of prophecy, and psalm. And it's a beautiful thing every morning. But this, it says... On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So on the last great day, right, they wake up in the morning, it's the water libation, it's the end, it's the seventh day. They parade through the streets, they get the golden vessel, they fill it up with water, They walk back up, but this time when they get to the altar, they walk around the altar seven times. Why? Because that's what they did at Jericho. Seven times. That represents the end of the wanderings when they come in to conquer Jericho, where God did an amazing miracle. It was the first fruits for God. And seven times they walked around Jericho's, and the walls came a-tumbling down. Do you remember the story? And so they would walk around the altar seven times and they would pour out the water. This is the scene. Jesus steps up and he says, if someone, the one who believes in me, is thirsty, let them come and let them drink. The one who believes in me, just as scripture says, rivers from his belly will flow living water. We talked about this last time. I just read you the original great transliteration of the discussion of last week is where does the water come from? Whose belly? Sometimes you read it and it seems like the one who believes from his belly comes living water. But it can also mean, and I'm going to show you why I believe it is this way, it literally means if someone, the one who believes in me, is thirsty, Let them come to me and let them drink. Can you, uh, let's see. The one who believes in me, just as scripture says, rivers from his belly will flow rivers of living water. So whose belly? Look at Exodus 17, six through seven. The exit, they're headed towards Mount Sinai. They've come out of Egypt. Um, They have been freed from the bondage of slavery. They have passed through the water. They are on their way to form a covenant with God, and they grumble because they're thirsty. Exodus 17, 6 through 7, behold, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Who is standing on the rock when he strikes it? Yahweh. He says, I will stand on the rock before you. You strike the rock. And when you strike it, water will flow. I gave you some scripture last week, if you remember, to look about how God is very often designated as the rock in scripture. Let's take some time now and look at it. Deuteronomy 32, 4, it says, The rock, his work is perfect, 
for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. God the rock. Psalm 78, Psalm 78, 35. They remember, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. Psalm 95, 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful no noise to the rock of our salvation. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. I read it to you last week. Let's look at one more time because uh, Paul's going to make this clear to us. He says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Who's the rock? Jesus. Jesus is the rock. So he's saying, listen, I want you to understand, our forefathers, they were all delivered from Egypt. They all passed through the waters of baptism. They all ate the same spiritual food and manna, and they all drank the same spiritual drink from the rock, and the rock was who? Christ. Jesus is trying to bring back all that symbolism for them to pass through the waters, to enter into a covenant with me. Something new is happening, a new covenant, and it is going to be in my flesh. I am the bread of life. I am the rock, and from my belly comes what? Living water. Anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink, because from my belly comes forth what? Living water. I'm in mean, Corinthians. It says that that rock followed them. The reason it says that is, do you remember there were two occasions where the rock was struck? One was on the way to Mount Sinai and one was on the way into the promised land. It should have been spoken to, but it was struck. And so in that context, right, Paul is saying that rock was there the whole time. It followed them. But the point is that he is the rock and from him, flows living water. Now, let me ask you, can you think of another incident later on in John where something is struck and water pour, pours forth? Say that five times. Jesus on the cross. Do you remember that? He's on the cross and the soldier strikes him or pierces his side. And what comes out? Blood and water. Now, a lot of people come up with scientific reasons uh, for why this happens, I don't think that was on John's mind when he penned this gospel. I think all along, it is all the symbolism that we have seen of who he is. This is blood and water, blood and water. I dare you to go back through all of the portraits we've looked at and search for and look for the symbolism of this new covenant in his blood that he is the living water. It's all through. I just took a quick glance. The first one, the wedding. The purification water was turned into 
wine representing abundance, joy, obedience. It also represents the best for last. It also represents the blood of Christ. How about the temple? He is talking about, he's cleansing the temple, but he's talking about his death and resurrection, that he is the living temple. What about the rabbi? He says to him, you won't see the kingdom unless you are born again. A man must be born of water and what? And spirit. And then he goes on to tell Nicodemus when he goes, how's that? Just as the bronze serpent is raised up in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up. It's going to be in my flesh. Death, my blood. What about the well? What does he say to her? Oh. If you knew who was talking, you would ask, and I would give you living water. How about the incident at the Sabbath? Do you remember? This man thinks this pool is the healing pool. And Jesus walks in. You want to talk about stirring the waters. He walks in and stirs stuff up because he works on the Sabbath. He's like, the living water is right here. Do you want to be healed? And he heals him, and he makes him whole. Because that's what Sabbath was all along. It was the garden for a day. That's what it was. A time to rest from your toil. To remember what God has done for you. And to have relationship. Let it be a sign to you that he's the most important thing in your life. Because you stop and you enjoy that Sabbath. Passover. Do you see it? Uh, yeah. This drink. How, are you, how will you have salvation? You eat my flesh and you drink my blood. It is all through. The symbolism is all through. And it continues to the end because I want you to see something. Look at Revelations 22. If you were here last year, we touched on this. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God, and of the Lamb. Where is it flowing from? From the throne. Who's on the throne? From the Lamb, Christ. Through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and they will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. Man, we're about to get right there. And they will reign forever and ever. The river of living water came forth from the throne from the Lamb of God and it went through and it watered the tree of life for its 12 fruits and the leaves, which are for the healing of the nation. Go to Revelations 3. How does this impact us? Because I truly believe that the water comes from the belly of Christ. He is the living water. But how does this affect us? Well, I'm going to read you um, this story of the church of Laodicea. And I told you last year, it's so weird, because this week I had a conversation with something someone, and like after I had, knew I was even going to teach this, and they used this, and I love this person, but they used it wrong, and they used it like I grew up hearing it, which is wrong, 
And it is, it can be very damaging if it's taught that way because we have all these young people that feel like if they can't work to be hot, that they're gonna give up because if they're lukewarm, God's gonna spit them out of their mouth. That's not even what this is saying, okay? That is not what this is saying. So let me read it and let me tell you what it's saying. Revelation 3, verse 14, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, the word of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you would either be cold or hot. I want to ask you something. Do you see what he's saying right there? We're used to, in Christianity, using the comparison, be hot, not cold. That is not what he just said. He said, oh, that you would be either hot or what? Or cold. In this analogy, in this analogy, just this one, he is not saying that hot is better than cold. He's saying, oh, that you would be either one. Okay? So somehow in this analogy, both hot and cold can be good. What is the bad? Lukewarm, okay, so keep, stay open, keep with me. Oh, that you would be either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So the one that's not useful, the one that's the problem is lukewarm. Not hot and not cold, but lukewarm. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What is he saying? This comfort that you have sought has so made you blind. Oh, that you would have eyes to see. These whom I love, I, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline to be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. So here is the deal. North of Laodicea was a town called Heropolis. And let me make sure I get the temperature right. It was known for its hot spring. To the south was Colossae. Colossae was known for its cold spring. Both of those are useful. Do you understand this? Heat, hot baths, emulsions. You can make teas. You can soak your aching bones in hot bath. What about cool? Cool is refreshing. It is healing. Both of those things are good for the healing of the nation. The problem is, by the time they got to Laodicea, which did not have a spring, they were what? Lukewarm of no use for healing. I believe right here, he's like saying, hey, come to me, all you her thirst, and drink. Because out of my belly flows living water, Revelation 22 says, for what? For the healing of the nations. But the only way that is going to happen is if we stay close to the source. 
And he is saying in Revelations 3, you have gotten away from the source because you have gotten rich and prosperous and you have been comfortable and you're no longer coming to me as the source. And because of that, the further away you get from the source, the rivers of living water, you're lukewarm and you're of no use. So the key to us being useful in this kingdom to be salt and light and to be living water is to what? He's like, stay close to the source. How? He's like, because I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone opens the door, I will sit down with him. This isn't about salvation. It's about staying close to the source, communing, eating my flesh and drinking my blood and taking this in eternally so that flows through me. So that as I love God and I see his love for me, I have an incredible love for others. And it comes out of me. And that is what he goes on to say. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4 says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. We are partakers of the divine nature. He said, Lord, please, just as, as I am in you and you are in me, may they also be in us. We are partakers of the divine nature. What is the nature of God like? What are the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Well, how do we exhibit those? I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man abides in me, what does that mean? Remains in me, he will what? Bear much fruit. This has nothing to do with legalistic behavior. It is the attitude of the nature, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. That is what he is saying. I am the living water. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. For as the scripture says, from his belly will flow forth living water. Abide in me. Ooh, this is good stuff. All right, get back to John chapter 8. Because of this, there's great division. Um, there's great division you'll see in the rest of the chapter in the group trying to figure out who he is. Uh, the chief priests come back without arresting him. Don't you find that funny? And they're like, oh, I don't know. We've never heard teaching like this. Like they get mesmerized every time they're around him because these are, remember who they are. They're the Levites. They're the ones who oversee, who enforce the rules of the law. And they go and they experience his teaching and they're like, they come back empty handed. And then the religious leaders get all rude and they're like, really? Are you like these ignorant people? These accursed, ignorant people who can't follow the law. This is why we're in this situation because we're so good. They can't follow the law. We try to enforce them. We, this is what we have because of them. Are you like them? And then who speaks up at the end of that? 
Nicodemus. He's like, well, you know, should we really, like, determine guilt before we truly give him a fair trial? And they're like, what? Do you remember who he is? The teacher in Israel. And they look at him and they go, what, are you from Galilee too? Are you from Podunkville too? Like, you know, lowly, non-academic, foolish, not wise. Is that, you're, you're buying this? Everybody knows that there are no prophets from Galilee. Really? That's actually not true. Nahum, Galilee. Jonah, Galilee. Okay, and so you still see all this blindness. But then look at chapter eight. Now, does anything bother you about the title? (laughs) What is it? Well, yeah, that's bothersome that she's the adulterous woman. But do you see anything written in there that might make you go, hmm? Or maybe in your footnote about this whole section? It says that this whole section was not in the original transcripts of John, okay? And that might keep you up a couple of nights uh, worrying about that. It didn't really, they believe, get added to the second century. Um, Here's the thing. Um, Rest easy because nobody disagrees if the story is true. The thing that they wonder is it was it originally placed in this spot in John, all right? Because we're looking at the Feast of Tabernacles and then when you get to the I am the light, it says, and then again, Jesus says, okay, here's the thing. We're not gonna waste a whole lot of time with that issue, okay? Because in my mind, it may not have been in the original transcript. John may not have intended this in his, it does fit his pattern often because he will have an incident and then a lot of teaching and then some kind of incident and teaching. But the deal is, I think in some ways it fits beautifully, so I'm just going to teach it like that. And we've already learned this story, but I'm just going to overview it for you, okay? Um, Remember that he is teaching, and there is a woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, Well, before that, it says that Jesus... After they had their last conversation, everybody else goes home. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, all right? If you've never been to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives has the greatest view of Jerusalem and especially the greatest view of the temple. So I would imagine he spent some time up there after this great conversation and he is looking out over Jerusalem. It's also a place where he prayed. It's a very important place because it's also the place of the crushing It's the place of the betrayal. It is the place he ascends from. It will be the place he descends to. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives while everybody else goes to their home. It reminds me the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. But more than likely, he went up to the Mount of Olives for a while and then over into Bethany, and he probably stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus that night. But it says that the next morning he came back into the temple to teach all. And so these religious leaders, you know the story, they, they find this woman caught in the act of adultery and they bring her and they throw her at Jesus's feet. They're trying to use her to trap Jesus. They don't care about her. They shame her and they use her as an object because their full intent is to trap Jesus. 
And so I have a couple of questions, and we talked about this last time. Where's the man? Okay, because the law actually requires both of their deaths, right? And the fact that they haven't um, really enforced this kind of corporal punishment for this in over a thousand years. And it's actually illegal in the Roman Empire for them to do so. So they are truly putting him in a pickle. Jesus, been, Jesus starts to bend down, um, and he writes in the dust. I want you to remember that the same hand that is writing in the dust is the same hand that formed man from the dust and is the same dust that man will go back to when they die. This finger that is writing in the dust also reminds us in Exodus Oh, no, it's Deuteronomy. I actually wrote it down for you. That it is the actual finger that penned the law in the first place. Deuteronomy 9.10. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, on the day of the assembly. Isn't that interesting? You have, remember, John has already claimed that this is in the beginning, or before the beginning began, was the Word. He equates the Word with God, that he was God, that he was with God, and that all things were made through him, and that he put on flesh and tabernacled among us, and we saw the glory of God in the only Son. And you have the picture of him, this finger of God, leaning down with this woman who has been cast out to trap him, why? Because they think he is always overstepping his bounds, that he is always overstepping the law because he's way too compassionate. So they have truly set him up to be compassionate and to break the law, but he doesn't. He leans down with that finger, the finger of God, and he begins to write in the dust. What did he write? We don't know. He could have written again the Ten Commandments, the law. He could have done that, and then the second time, he could have leaned back down because the Greek word also uh, insinuates a counter-accusation. So maybe he wrote down names and times and hotel rooms and locations, and I don't know what he wrote, but they did. And whatever he wrote, he, he looks at them, and he basically says, uh, okay, go ahead, stoner. But only the one can begin who has no sin. I think it's really interesting. Do you remember they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles? They're celebrating the wilderness wanderings. They're celebrating their freedom out of Egypt, passing through the waters, entering into a covenant with God. Uh, the provision in the wilderness, they're celebrating the manna, the water from the rock. Uh, life, true life that is found in him. And here they attempt to trap the author and the fulfillment of the law with the law. And he says, go ahead, stoner, but only the one who has no sin. What they fail to understand is the same law that they wield as a weapon of control and condemnation towards others will be the same standard by which they are judged. I'm going to say that again. What they failed to understand is the same law 
that they wield as a weapon of control and condemnation towards others will be the same standard by which they are judged. So by writing in the dust, he levels the playing field. He says, go ahead and stoner, but only the one who has no sin. What is he doing? I'm gonna tell you what he's doing. He's shining the light on the situation. He's making it clear. John 1 is what he's doing, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone. What is he doing right now? He's shining the light on the true situation. One, everybody seems to be able to see. The other one, they couldn't see too clearly. So he shines the light on that. He gives light to everyone. So the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood or the seed of man, not necessarily because they were seed of Abraham, but born from above. Do you remember John 3, 17 through 21? Listen to this in context of this story. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Okay, he just said, I'm not here to condemn. But let me tell you what the judgment is. The judgment's gonna happen in each person. Why? The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest their works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Do you understand that? Some will love the world want to hold on to their deeds and they will walk back into the darkness. The other will experience the love of God and realize that his works have been accomplished by God and they will walk into the light. The judgment is inside each individual. We see it here. Jesus steps on the scene and says, okay, let me clearly light this place up so that you see. On one hand, we have a rank sinner. On the other, we have religious sinners. On one hand, we have overt sinner. And on the other hand, we have covert sinners. Let me shine the light. Go ahead, stoner. But only if you have no sin. And what did they do? One group dropped the stones in their hand and they walked away from the light, holding on to the stones of their heart. That's what they did. The other one was released. She was released. Jesus did not excuse her sin. He forgave it. He could because he was the one that was going to pay for it. 
He was nothing like the religious leaders who had no right to condemn her and shamed her. He actually what? He had the right to condemn her, but he forgave her. And then he says, go and sin no more. In other words, now that you've encountered such love, go and be transformed. He doesn't give her a license to keep sinning. He gives her a reason not to. Let that sink in. He doesn't give her a license to keep sinning. He gives her a reason not to. The Bible says that it is the love of God that brings man to repentance. It's not the fear. The fear of God may get you down the aisle. It is the love of God. When you experience the love of God in the deepest, darkest times of your shame, when you realize you deserve nothing, and you experience that kind of love when you realize what you deserve and he forgives you because he is going to take that upon himself. And it says, and then he looked at the woman standing up in front of him, meaning he raised her up. He was the lifter of her head. And she experienced the forgiveness of God. And he said, now let this love transform you. That's what transforms. We have to introduce people to the love of Jesus. And when we do that, he will do his work of transformation inside of them. We don't call them to the love of Jesus, to the cross and to grace. And then the minute they experience Jesus, we bind them down with all kinds of laws of what we believe a Christian should look like. We allow God to transform their life individually when he removes their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh and he will then write his commandments on their heart and they will have a story with him. And their story may not look like your story, but it is a relationship with the living word, not using the written word, wielding it as a tool. Because I promise you, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and what is freed on this earth will be freed in heaven. So be careful how you judge, lest you will be what? Judged. And so it is all about love. John 8, 12. It says again, and this is why they think most of the time it fits, right? maybe without the adulterous woman, but I think the adulterous woman is a beautiful story that in the second century they placed there. And since they believe it, there's not one person that believes it wasn't part of Jesus's experience. And true, I'm good with it. All right, but then he says again, he stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Do you remember the second thing they did in the Feast of Tabernacles I told you last week? In the mornings, they did the water libation. What did they do in the evenings? They lit the golden candlesticks, the golden candelabras that were in, if you look at verse 20, it says that it was in the treasury. Do you see that? The treasury is where they took, uh, well, what we would call the offerings or even the taxes, and that's where they took the money. It was in the court of the women, And so every night 
uh, they would get up on these ladders and they would light these giant um, lampstands that had each had four enormous bowls of oils and the wicks were made out of the old undergarments of the priests. And so, and they would light them and the light was amazing because remember the temple, and if you've been there today, the temple mount is in the center of Jerusalem and it is the highest place. It is the temple, the holy place. And so the light would come down and penetrate. And where are they living? In booths, right? So they're in the streets. And so Josephus said, literally, the light was so amazing that the light penetrated into all of Jerusalem in the booths. So what would it have reminded them of? What are they remembering? They're in the wilderness, and they're living out in the wilderness. And what is in the center of their encampment in the wilderness? The tabernacle. And what is dwelling above the mercy seat? The glory, Shekinah glory of God that they could see coming down from the sky resting on top of the mercy seat, right? And they also knew that the Messiah, according to 14, Isaiah 49, 6, would be a light to the nations. Listen to this. This is a um, messianic scripture, and it says this, Isaiah 49, 6, talking about the coming Messiah. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Like, that's just a small thing. What's the great thing? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Why did he pick Abraham? Abraham, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. We're going to find out later, Abraham was the father of the nation, but he was the father of those who believe. And that because of the coming Messiah, those who believe will be children of God. They will be called the children of Abraham. And that is why Abraham's seed will be like the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky. He goes on to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's like, salvation is in the following. What would have come to their minds with that? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. They're in the wilderness, right? They had manna. Jesus says, I am the manna. I am the bread from heaven. They had the water from the rock in these celebrations. I am the living water, right? And now what else did they have leading them? The fire, right? The pillar of fire by the cloud by day and the fire by night. They literally followed it, removed, came off of the tabernacle as they packed it and it moved. It led them through the wilderness to get to the promised land. It led them in the way of salvation, this pillar of fire. I want you to, um, I want you to see a scripture, Exodus 14, 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, oh, by the way, this is uh, before the Red Sea, and they are, they're trapped, Okay. 
Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between us, the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What just happened? (laughs) I love this. Because if you're a mother, you kind of understand this too, right? If someone is messing with your kid, oh, uh-uh, right? I have been, I've made myself a fool in those situations. I don't know about you, but he's, they're scared. This is his nation, his firstborn. And this father, what does he do? It says the pillar of fire, the cloud comes around who's leading them now comes around behind them to separate them from the Egyptians. And look what it says. It says, and there was the cloud and the darkness on one side, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other. So on one side towards the Egyptians, what was it? A great darkness. And on the other, what was it? a great light as they pass through the waters, okay? And so to follow that was salvation. Does that not remind you of John 3, 19? And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Some will like darkness and they will go back to the darkness, but the other, they will go to the light because they will see their works accomplished by who? By God. They will experience that. This theme is running all through John. This idea of light and darkness and life and death and following me as a way of salvation. Jesus has claimed that he is the bread from heaven, that he is the rock producing living water, that he is the light of the world. In him is salvation. In him is life. Do you know what he is claiming to them right now? He is claiming to them that he is Yahweh. That he is the great I am. Because in the wilderness, Moses says, whom shall I say sent me? And what did he say? I am that I am. That is my name. And it was the great I am, Yahweh, who led them into salvation through the wilderness. And what is Jesus claiming to be? I am. Something new is coming. I am making a new people. Those who believe in me will be the children of God, the true sons of Abraham. They will pass through the waters of repentance. They will enter into a covenant relationship with me. And it won't just be the scales. No, 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 no. Those are the basics. That's elementary. I'm here to show you how to turn the scales into music. How? Because I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. That's how. I'm going to write my words on your heart. And how do you have salvation in this wilderness until you get to the holy land, until you get to the promised land? I will tell you. I am the bread of life. You can strive after food every day. You can strive after what the earth has to offer. And I'm going to tell you what, you're going to walk away starving to death. 
It is not that. I am the bread of life. I'm true life, not just physical life. I'm purpose. I'm identity. I'm worth. I'm hope. I'm joy. I am real life. Eat me. Drink my blood. Put me inside of you. Internalize me. I will bring you to life. And not only that, I am the living water. You want joy, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? It's going to come from me. Stay close to the source. And when you do, you will be useful to the healing of the nations. I am the light of the world. I am the light. The only way you will maneuver this world is in my light to follow me, and there will be salvation. I don't have time to tell you this last story that just brings it home. Um, I'll tell it to you next week, but it is so amazing how when you study different things, it just literally, you end up having conversations all week where you see these kinds of things. I promise you, you cannot understand this world unless you see it through the eyes of Jesus. Let me read you a quote, C.S. Lewis. And I'll I'll read it again next week. But it says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Let me read it again. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. I told you the story about me playing golf with the young man one day, and he had a lot of questions because he says, I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. And remember, we laughed, and I thought, well, what a perfect person for you to play golf with then. But as I began to explain things through the lens of Jesus, he's like, huh, I've never seen that before. That is because nothing in this world makes sense without him. That is why. And we're going to look, you can't understand yourself, nor can you understand this world, the things of this world, unless you know the light of the world. Because we will be wandering around in the darkness. And that is what he is trying to tell these Pharisees. Really? You're blind and you judge? I'm the light and I've chosen not to. And we'll talk about that next week. Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for your amazing word. Lord, may I know it not to wield it as a weapon, but may I know it so that it transforms my life to know you better because that's what it did this week. Thank you, God, that we can be open. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have to tell us. Lord, may every day we drink deeply if we want to have impact. Lord, do not let us strive over the comforts of the world that do not satisfy and actually make us lukewarm. Remind us 
This is not our kingdom. We are members of a heavenly kingdom with a king who is Lord of lords, who there is no corruption in him. And everything about our kingdom is upside down to the kingdom of this earth. Lord, the kingdoms of the earth build their kingdom on strong men, prosperous men, influential men. Lord, you built your kingdom on those who mourn, the meek. Everything about our kingdom, Lord, is upside down. It is against our fleshly nature. Pray for your enemies. If you want to be a leader, serve. If you want to save your life, then lose it. So God, teach me to be a member of your kingdom, which is so counterculture to mine. We sure love you, and the only way we will ever be able to do that is to stay close to the spring. And so may we do that. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Mary Shannon Bible Study. Be sure to subscribe. Shannon also hosts the hilarious and heartfelt Mary Shannon's Table podcast, where along with friends, they chat about life, faith, and leadership. Check out the show now and subscribe. If you want to connect with Mary Shannon, go to Instagram at It's Mary Shannon or visit itsmaryshannon.com.